Good morning. Today we come to that time on our church calendar where we celebrate another Grace Talk. And I had a couple of questions from people as you walked in this morning about Grace Talk, so I thought we'd spend just a quick minute to align on what that is and what it looks like. We are blessed to be part of a church family that is led by a group of man, men who highly value God's Word. And we have this absolutely insane idea that this book that was written from 2,000 to 3,600 years ago is full of truth that is directly applicable to your life as you go to work and school and interact with your family and coworkers. And we realize that sometimes as you're interacting with these folks, you run into things that don't seem to match up exactly with what you read in scripture. And sometimes life poses questions that are difficult to answer. And we want this church to be a place where we know we can find reliable, scripture-based answers for the hard questions in life. And that's what we're going to explore together this morning. We have Pastor Larry, Pastor Dan, and Pastor Zach. And I'm going to be asking them a few questions which you have submitted. And they are going to share some biblical answers and interact with one another a little bit to make sure we fully flesh out those answers for daily living. And first up, this morning, we have Pastor Larry, and his question should be appearing on the screens in front of you momentarily. The question is, I recently reconnected with a high school friend and found out he is seeking to transition himself into a woman. When I asked what he's planning to do after college, he said, I'm not too worried about that at the moment. I'm trying to focus on mental health and gender stuff. How should I respond to that? Well, I don't want to shut him out, given he's clearly struggling, I also don't want to affirm what he's doing. What's the most helpful way to deal with this from a Christian perspective? Okay, thanks. Well, this is, I think, a really important question. Um, And I think it's a question we all need to think about how we would answer because we live in a day when gender and sexuality issues are the golden calf of of our culture. I mean, they, they are the thing being used by the enemy more than almost anything else to undermine truth in the, in the public square and even sometimes in the, in the church, unfortunately. Um, so we have, to, we have to be able to address these issues when they come up. And so I want to I first talk about how our response should be handled in a general sense. And then I'll talk one thing I'm going to assume on one page, but it, this appears to be um, an encounter at an event um, between two people that hadn't seen each other in a while. So it's not an ongoing relationship. And so I'm going to answer the question kind of in that vein as to how you would handle that situation. Um, so, and one thing also to remember is you, you're going to probably answer this question differently in a one-on-one situation with somebody that you know than you would dealing with somebody who's trying to promote this in the public square or dealing with somebody who's trying to obviously, you know, bring this into the church. So in general, um, you, you will sometimes hear in situations like this, some voices that are saying, well, you just need to share the gospel with this person, right? There's no need to even bring up the transgender issue because ultimately what that person needs is conversion. And um, I'm actually going to say I disagree with that. Um, I don't disagree with the fact that we need to share the gospel with them. I don't disagree with the fact that the gospel is what they need, and that's the most important thing that they need. Um, But I disagree with the part about not putting your finger on the particular sin that is standing between them and eternal life in Christ. Um, You know, we're we're not called to repent in the abstract, right? Um, The Bible's specific about things that will keep a person from the kingdom of God, and so we should be specific about those things too when we're talking to people. And um, you just consider a couple of examples 
um, from Christ. This is um, John 4, beginning in verse 16, when he is dealing with the woman at the well. And he says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so Jesus puts his finger really on, you might say, the woman's besetting sin, right? Her sexual immorality is is what he begins to talk with her about. Um, You have another example in Mark chapter 10. This is Jesus with the rich young ruler. Um, Beginning of verse 20, this is the rich young ruler speaking first. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, and this is important, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so Jesus says loved him and he loved him enough to put his finger on the thing that was standing between this young man and the kingdom of God. And in this case, that was his money. That was greed, okay? Um, and if I think about my own life, right? I, I've, I was a professing Christian from probably the age of eight or nine years old. Um, but it wasn't until a specific sin that I had been harboring in my life was brought to light and dealt with when I was much older that I began to really experience freedom and to walk in, in the truth of the gospel. I mean, I was living sort of a formulaic, quote-unquote, Christian life. Before that, freedom came from dealing with that specific sin, the sin that was specific to me, that was standing between me um, and the kingdom of God. Um, and here's something else to really consider, too. When you, when you have, this is an opportunity, right, with this person. I mean, when you, when you think about the entertainment industry in our culture, the education establishment in our culture, the news media, even the medical establishment, sadly, all of those people are going to line up behind this person and affirm them in their self-destruction. All those people are. Probably every person that they meet is going to in some way say, you go, that's great, you be you. You might be, this opportunity may be presenting this person with the only chance that somebody will tell them the truth. You, you have an opportunity here to speak truth to a person who's not going to get truth about this from other places. Um, and so having said that, sort of as general comments, how should, how should we respond? This, again, if this is a brief encounter with someone that we, we may not see again or we may see only periodically, I really like Greg Kokel's approach to things like this. He's an apologist. He actually came here many years ago and, and spoke. But he talks about asking questions, about making people think about their beliefs and what he, what he calls putting a stone in their shoe, putting something in their, in their brain, like a, you know, a brain worm up there where they maybe think, maybe I need to rethink you know, how I have... I've been thinking about this. He talks about having a gardening mindset as opposed to a harvesting mindset, right? You don't have to close the deal with every person that you're talking to, but if you put, you know, a little water on the plant, if you till the soil a little bit, if you plant a seed, others may come along after you that the Holy Spirit then uses to bring this person to faith. And so that's kind of how I would approach this. Um, And so Coco likes to say, be smart, be nice, be tactical, right? And the the tactical part, I think, is where we need the most help and the most prior planning because caught off guard like this, and this person wasn't expecting this exchange probably when they went up to their, their old friend. Um, so you have to kind of think ahead of time tactically how you do that. So here, here's some things I just thought of that you might could say. Um, you know, the person said, I'm, I'm going to concentrate on gender stuff. So maybe you could say, well, that's interesting. Tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean by I'm going to concentrate on gender stuff? That might be a way to get the, the conversation rolling. Um, some other questions you could ask, depending on how things go. Um, what are you relying on to know what your gender is, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and if they say myself or my feelings, which is very likely, given that's where most of this is coming from, um, you could try questions like, well, have you ever believed something sincerely and then found out later that you were wrong, right? Is it possible that you're wrong about this? Um, or you could personalize it. You could say, well, you know, I used to think this about myself, but then I realized that it wasn't true. And so what I have found is that the best source for truth about myself is not me, but what God says, because God's who designed and made me. I mean, you could do some questions like that. Um, I, I know just because I know a little bit of background on this question that this took place in the context of a, a Christian college. So it's possible that the person believes in God. It's probably very likely. And you might even say, well, do you believe in God, right? And if they say, yes, I do, you could say something like, well, um, wouldn't you agree that in order for God to be God, one of his attributes needs to be that he's perfect, right? That he makes no mistakes. Um, so do you, which do you think is more likely, that God made a mistake when he created you by putting you in the wrong body, or that maybe you're mistaken about your experience? You could ask questions like that as well. Um, so I think, I think the goal here is, I mean, if, if you are blessed by the Holy Spirit with an opportunity to carry this through to the end and share the gospel and, and seek repentance, then absolutely pursue that. But if not, the goal is to at least begin to shake their self-reliance a little bit, right? And, and, and help them to think, maybe I don't have all the answers within myself. Maybe I need to seek those answers outside myself through Jesus Christ. Um, so that's just some thoughts I had on that. If you have, if you have an ongoing relationship with the person, you're going to able to have multiple meetings with them. You see them a lot. Your answers and your approach might be somewhat different. But that's the way you can get started, I think. That was good. I think that one of the primary things I want to think too is your aim that the asking the questions, you're not trying to fix them, which I think for me, that's what I go to. It's mm-hmm. like, I see the problem. I'm going to fix it, right? Show me a nail. I got hammers, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of the, those asking the questions is a really good approach because they need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fix themselves, right? I might be able to convince them of some stuff, mm-hmm. but now you're starting to think. And we were sharing, I can't remember the last time I was witnessing to somebody or sharing the gospel with somebody and asked them a question and they knew why they thought what they thought. Like 20, 30 years ago, that happened sometimes, but now people go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. So I, I really commend that, the asking questions tactic. I think that's a really good well, approach. And this idea that all truth comes from within us is so yeah. pervasive in our culture. And it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta get outside that that's right. paradigm. Yeah, I've used before when I talk with somebody, have you ever believed something? I, I've, I've used different things that you've believed as a, mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really helpful thing. The other thing is to remember that the individual who's participating in this is... Uh, been taken captive. That's right. mm-hmm. So in 1 Timothy 4, 2, it talks about doctrines of demons. Mm-hmm. So remembering that this isn't something this person is just doing solely on their own. There's a, there's a spiritual warfare that's happening and that the enemy is taking people captive and he's positioning it that people start identifying who they are with their behavior, mm-hmm. not their identity. So same thing when it parallels Christianity. You have to know your identity and define yourself by that, not your behavior. So like, for example, if you're in Christ, that's your identity. You'll find victory as you orient from that. But if you see, oh, I, I'm not perfect or I don't live by faith, that's my identity. And you don't see yourself in Christ, you're going to struggle. Same thing when it comes to people in this world today. If they misunderstand their identity, male or female, and they just align themselves according to their feelings or influences in their life. There's going to be incredible confusion. And the enemy always loves to function on that level because everything else down line gets jacked up in their life. And once you make that, you're talking about that, the argument's now off base. 
Like once we're talking, it is a problem that somebody doesn't understand their gender and they're going back and forth inside identity. That's, an, that's a problem. But that's not the ultimate problem. That's the penultimate problem. The problem, uh, uh, help me, what do I mean when I say penultimate? Uh, the, not the final, right? The before that, leading the up to The next final one. Yeah, the sorry, next. sorry. Um, I, try not to, I try to think about my words. I was worried <laughs> you were touching me. <laughs> um, so the problem is not... That, but the ultimate problem is they don't look like God, right? You're made to be an image bearer. That's the ultimate problem. So like Larry said, yes, we share the gospel, but the gospel isn't simply repent from your sins. The gospel is you were made to bear God's image. You do not. Therefore, you're getting snuffed out, right? It's bigger than but, that. And I think so they have to address that issue, but that's not the issue we're trying to fix. We're trying to fix this person is not bearing the Lord's image. Right. When I think you have, a, there's an element, I think, of, um, of discontent. Um, leading to covetousness in this oh, mindset. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, because what, what God, God has created me to be a man or to be a woman, but I am, if I'm a man, I am not happy with that. Something that makes me unhappy about that. So I begin to covet femaleness. That's right. And coveting means desiring anything that God says you can't have. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it too. It's yeah. a dissatisfaction. And so helping the person to find their satisfaction in Christ is is a big part of it. Absolutely. You know? And I've jumped right with you on that. It's also a form of idolatry. So mm-hmm. when you, what is idolatry? Is that mm-hmm. a good thing ultimately is the ultimate thing for you. So the idea is that somebody goes, I'm not content. And the world says, yeah, you're not content because you're misunderstanding your gender. And so what's, what's creating is this idea of, well, you need to take this into your own hands and you need to refashion yourself. And so it's an amazing thing that we're right back into the garden at this point. Uh, God's the creator. No, he's not. You can be a creator. Oh, how far can this go? You can actually determine your gender. And all of this stuff, when you look at the tentacles of all of this, it all runs back to the enemy and the hating of the image of God in people. And so therefore, if he can confuse people at the identity level, he can own them. And so I know that some people, as you'd said, uh, your concern, kind of butting your nose in, uh, confronting somebody, it's uncomfortable, but it's like throwing a lifeline to them because they're caught behind enemy lines. So take the opportunity, as, as awkward as it may feel, loving someone really means doing what's in their best interest. Not even that they would agree that it's in their best interest. It's loving to run into a burning building to help somebody get out. All the more entering into that conversation because it's only going to get worse. And one of the things you talked about is that this happens in a Christian family. Uh, one of the things that I think we should talk about is very often when people make this transition, you see the parents that would go, no, I believe your man is a man, a woman is a woman. And then the child transitions and all of a sudden the parents aren't sure. Or whether it comes to homosexuality, all of a sudden they go, well... Maybe they were born gay. And what we're seeing is the scaffolding of belief that the parents had was that fragile. And so how do you reach out to the son or daughter? How do you reach out to the neighbor? And we're going to be talking about that more as we move into the fall. But what would you say to somebody? How would you approach the parents maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing actually as, as as the person is you've got to get your truth from the word of God. You can't get your truth from your feelings or your circumstances. And so if my truth changes based on my child's behavior, then my truth is not grounded in the word of God. And so that's, that's the issue. And we right? can't capitulate on love, right? Word, right. Words matter. And we saw, you use the text. Jesus loved the rich young ruler. Right. 
right. and then he confronted him. And right. that, it wasn't that, but, like right. he loved him, but anyway, he confronted him. Mm-hmm. No, the action that came after love mm-hmm. was the confrontation. So the world doesn't get to define love. God made up that concept that says, take your definition from yeah, the Bible, and, and you, that's on ours. You, you treat them kindly, you treat them with compassion, you right. love them, especially if it's your child, you're not gonna like put them out and mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing, that's, that's what they choose to do. But you also stand firm on the truth of the word of God. And I think what we have to realize is, Standing firm on the truth of the word of God is going to be seen as hate by a lot of people in the world. And so we, we can't let, uh, just, just like we've just talked about with the people in view here, we also can't let our barometer be the person's reaction, right? Oh, well, I must have done something wrong because they don't like what I said. Hmm. Well, if what you said is, is truth from God's word, then the fact that they don't like it is not on you, it's on them. That's right. You yeah, know? And I think so. it brings up the tension. Mm-hmm. I've never seen right. kids in math class arguing two plus two is really five. And then somebody going... You need to read no, the that's news my more. Truth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I stand corrected. But I, I think the nature of truth, that people think that truth shifts, and it's what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. We're starting to reinterpret what truth is. Uh, because again, we want to be play God. And so you have to engage, and you have to go in, as Larry said, not with the expectation that everybody will just love you. That's right. It's just not the way it is. Uh, as far as followers of Christ, you will stand out. Just accept it. Have a few arguments in mind, a few questions in mind to be able to ask somebody, and engage and look for uh, look for that conversation to go. One of the things as Christians we we struggle with people in general. We don't love to li- we don't live in tension really well. How do I oppose this thought but love the person? How do I stand against what's evil? But I support people in moving away from what's evil. That I have a child who's struggling with this and I love them well and yet I can't stand that they're going through this. We don't like the tension, but you're called to learn how to negotiate that as you look to the word, look for Christ's spirit to comfort you, to give you the words and sit in that time of tension. That's what you're called to do in that moment. Don't run from it. Don't seek comfort by getting out of the situation. You're there as an ambassador in that moment. And lean into the support system that you have. So I think about, I used to work in a corporate environment that was very pro this agenda, right? This LGBT. And we had in this area in Atlanta, a lot of people that, um, that, that lived those kind of lifestyles. Uh, and it's funny, the way that I would interact with them, I would constantly think about, and not that I always did it well, but I would think about trying to love them the way Christ did. How would I interact with these people? Literally, like thinking about the what WWJD bracelet kind of thing, you know, what would I do? And the irony is, as I would interact, there would be people who would come that were secular and be like, I think you're coming a little hard. I don't know that you need to try to force your beliefs on people. Kind of what you would expect from that end, right? So I get that. But then the other hand, I would have Christians that'd be like, I don't think you should talk to me about that stuff. I don't, you, shouldn't you be, t- I don't know, you should just tell them that they're sinning and get, so I thought, well, I'm a good company. It's like Jesus, right? The, the religious Pharisees. So it's, it's the same thing. You'll probably have people that claim to follow Christ that will say, you just need to hit him in the face with the, tr- the truth and walk off the stage. And then you'll have other people that'll be saying that you're too hard, right? But you're in good company. You're with Jesus. And what got me through that was leaning into you guys. The body of Christ, sharing my experience with you, my testimony, and I would get feedback and support. And you guys would go, some people would say, maybe you need to sand this off. Maybe you do need to support it. But as a body of believers together, we're empowered to be able to go out and represent Christ well. So don't be afraid to dig into the resource you've been given, which is probably sitting next to you. 
we do have a couple more questions. I want to make sure we allow time and to get to. we probably need to move along, right? But, <laughs> but to summarize, I just want to highlight there's some foundational principles in the conversation we just had that apply far more broadly. So you, you heard some discussion of identity. And there's this consistent warning throughout Scripture that when we're helping someone else out of their sin, we should be vigilant about ourselves. Take heed lest we also fall. And you also may have an identity that's based on something other than Christ. If you're finding satisfaction in your finances, your popularity, your status, you're falling into that same temptation. And so this is an invitation, a warning to us to be on guard about what is the foundation of our identity. We also heard something about the authority of Scripture. And in our homes, is Scripture really the authority? Are we living our lives by public opinion? And you can only answer those questions by the power of the Holy Spirit in your own family, but it's a warning. This is the way our lives are designed to operate, with Christ as the basis of our identity and Scripture as the authority of our lives. And that that really ties in well to our next question for Dan. Some people say the prohibition against women speaking in church in 1 Timothy 2, 11, 12, and 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 means women cannot ever teach at church, including other women in things like women's Bible studies or D groups. This seems to contradict passages like Titus 2, 3 through 5, where women are instructed to teach the younger women of the church. What is the position of Grace Fellowship on this? Thank you, gentlemen. I am deeply appreciative of your incredibly difficult work to build up, edify, and lead the flock well, pointing them ever to Christ. I praise our Savior for the gift that he has given to his bride in each one of you leading well, so that we might be conformed more and more to the image and likeness of Christ. Yeah. So the issue isn't the conveyance of truth, giving out truth. We know that's true because we have places like in Ephesians 5:19 where it talks about speaking to each other in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, even when we're here singing today, you're conveying truth one to another. Uh, we know that uh, women will teach children. We know that naturally you should teach your own kids. Uh, we have teaching that happens in hallways when somebody uh, reminds somebody of some truth, like in D groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not the conveyance of truth. It's the authority over that truth or the authority in administering the truth. So turn over to 1 Timothy because this is important. Whenever we look at a subject and have a couple verses, we want to know the context. That's the first thing you want to do. Figure out, okay, what is the author exactly saying? And in 1 Timothy, he's writing to a group of people in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus also had... Uh, a god by the name of Artemis or Diana in that city. Matter of fact, the people of Ephesus believed that she was born there, and so therefore they highly identified. It was the god of fertility. And so they would help, um, the belief was in the city that that Artemis or Diana would help midwives in giving birth to children. So their life kind of rotated around a female authority basis in their culture. And so they were having all sorts of issues with false teaching, false prophets that are coming up in the church. And then he gets to the point we arrive at 1 Timothy 2.8. And we start seeing a shift in looking at roles within the church. And he says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
likewise, also the woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So you see there, this is what guys are supposed to do, this is what girls, it doesn't say that only the guys pray. It doesn't say only the guys lift up holy. They're just talking about general roles. And then when he arrives here, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now that's really important because that phrase, I do not permit, it's in the present tense and it has the idea, this is a standard for all churches. But for some reason, I think given the context, it's a rising up in church and he, in Ephesus and he has to say this. And when he says women to teach, didasco, it's the idea literally to teach, convey truth, but, or exercise authority. And in the, in the phrase, it has the idea that teaching has an authoritative base. And he said, we convey truth, but when it comes to a woman having authority, and that speaks to the role of being a pastor. In this context, when they'd come together in the assembly, he says, it's not for the role for the woman to take the lead and have the authority. And I'd remind, in this context, it's not even supposed to be an individual pastor when it comes to a healthy church. It's supposed to be a plurality of leaders. So this isn't a male versus female thing. This is just a design thing, the way that the Lord has designed the church. Because it says, teach her authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Or as the idea uh, in 1 Corinthians, the idea of submissive. In other words, you don't stand up in the assembly and question. You don't, you don't take on the role of a pastor in this context. And now we get to the place where we go, man, that, that feels really demeaning, doesn't it? No. Not if we understand that all of us play different roles. Think about it like this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no demeaning in anything of their character, but in the roles they play very distinct roles. Female, male. And God has designed the role of the office of pastor uniquely for a man. Not because he's better, but because it's Christ's church. And this is what he says, the role that we play. And the pastor will be responsible for what he teaches. And so I think in the context of what he's saying here, and in the general context, it's not conveying truth as much as it's having authority. So let's look over to 1 Corinthians now, quickly here, when it comes to this passage. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and in that verse 34 and 35, what exactly does it mean? It says, as in all the churches of the saints, that's the end of 33, and he's correcting some speaking of tongues and prophecy in the assembly. So remember, the context is within the gathering of the church, not outside the church, not in the hallways, but in the formal teaching of the church. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, as the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should learn. Let that sounds harsh. Tongues happening and lawsuits against one another. From what we understand, if you read the first part of 1 Corinthians, there was people having lawsuits against one another. There were people, I follow him and I follow him. There was immorality that was happening, and there's also confusion in roles. So 
presumably there were people, women speaking out or interpreting, or let's say there's an interpreter stands up in one part of the assembly and a woman then goes, I don't know if that's true or I question the legitimacy of that. And now all of a sudden they're taking on a role of authority. That authority is now leaking in. And so what he says is, listen, if there's a question to be had, let's not go to the point that we go against the role that God has played for us. Ask your husband at home. Clarify. Ask what is going on. As Larry pointed out, there are times where I'll teach and Vicki will say, well, Dan, what did you mean by that? Or what were you trying to convey? And I'll talk with her and she'll go, "Ah, I don't think you conveyed that very well. It's not that women don't have a say. It's and it's She certain, didn't stand up in church and hold her she hand. She didn't stand go, up in church. Hey. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but the issue is authority. Again, be careful. We don't look at it through the cultural lens that we live in. That somehow it's chauvinistic. It's uniquely within the assembly, uniquely in an expression of authority that was reserved for the pastors. It does not mean that a woman cannot convey truth. A woman should not teach, like in Titus, other women. And even teach men. I'll be in a Bible study and somebody can say something, a woman say something, absolutely appropriate. It's not the issue of conveying truth. It's the issue of having the office of pastor that I think is in view here. So I've talked, I've I th- talked enough. But I think you also make a really good point talking about that context that we don't want to impose. I think we can tend to ask a question of the scriptures that they're not talking about here. So th- like mm. this format is not something a first century church would have had any of idea of what was happening. That word, didakos, when it's talking about the conveyance of knowledge, they would have immediately understood that as an apprenticeship type thing. It wasn't simply here's data. They understood authority came yeah. with that word. And then it says, and because then, then he refers to creation. And that's what some people will say. They go, well, this is an ordinance for every context ever because it refers to creation. Well, I wish you could explain that to Paul. Like Paul, because Paul's not sitting there writing that. He knows who he's writing to. He's writing to a person. He's, you don't get to go, let me take it my context and the modern construct we've created, like a conference or something, mm-hmm. and then go back here and use these verses. You can be informed by them, but you're now robbing the author of the intent he had when he was writing. Paul was not thinking about a conference when he was writing to Timothy. He was not thinking about a women's Bible study when he was writing to Ephesus. He was thinking about a context that you need to pay attention to. Yes, there's application, but if you try to do a one-for-one, you're now becoming a co-author with the text. And I would encourage you not to do that. Yeah. (laughs) And and that goes back to, I mean, a principle is that, you know, we we need to respect and honor the guardrails of Scripture, but we need to let the Scripture set the guardrails. And and if, if the kernel of truth that we're trying to protect is only men should be elders, and we do believe that's a biblical truth to be stood on and protected. Um, you don't protect that by adding another layer to the law, so to speak, that says, okay, well, in order to protect that, that women can't be elders, we have to say women can never teach anybody. Because, you know, God's given us what we need in his word, right. and I think we can stand on the truth that women can't be elders um, without having to add our own layer of protection to it, so It'd to be speak. very convenient, right. though, if we could right. write a manual, because then when we had the question, I right. could just go, if you could reference section 2.3a, but right. the problem is yeah. that's not how the scripture's been revealed to and us. And I think yeah. that we, uh, people in general, this goes back to the first thing, we, we quest to remove all tension. Yeah. So we create these, the scaffolding of, well, if we don't want to be pastors, like you said, well, let's not let do this, not let them do this. And eventually you actually create your big problem because we fall meant to function certain ways. 
And we don't have all the answers, but we do have what's necessary. So the idea of authority. So that's why when it comes to the women's Bible studies, we'll look at the content, we'll look at the publisher, we'll look at the authors. And rightly, the ladies ask because they understand that. Hey, is there something we're not seeing here? Is there something that may be off? Because we know that when we communicate truth, we want to make sure that we have a good source to be able to do that. And to cement the idea that Paul never had in mind to demean women. The idea in that passage where he talks about that they should be taught in that culture, um, that w- women were completely excluded. So they were s- seen to be part of the assembly and seen to be learning and engaging, but also all the more, if you think about the different people that Paul identifies as co-workers in the church, in the gospel, Yodi and Syntyche, Prisca, Mary, Junia, uh, Trifana, Trophosa, Phoebe, all these different were women and we have even uh, at Pentecost, you saw the men and women prophesying. You saw them conveying truth, communicating truth. So the issue at hand here is the issue of the office, the authority of a pastor in a local assembly. That's where it's localized. And Timothy's mother. Timothy's like Paul mother. Saying, and his grandmother. Yeah. I thought you liked that my mom taught me. <laughs> so. Yeah, so we... We, we would be in error if we constricted back and say women aren't supposed to teach. That would just be adding scripture. And I would say also on our, we, I preached on this when we were going through Timothy in November, I think it's November 1st of 2020, go into a little bit more of those textual context and some more exegesis about this, this particular passage. I'd encourage you to find that on YouTube. Yeah, and I'll post the content from what we talked about today on our blogs. I think, don't you think also that the plurality of gifts that God has given to the church comes into this too. I mean, I, I have the responsibility from God to disciple my wife and to disciple my children. But the fact that I'm, that that's my primary responsibility to do that does not mean I have to be the exclusive teacher of them, Mm -hmm. right? Because I don't have all the gifts, right? Other people in the church have gifts that I don't have. And so my wife and children interacting with other people in the church, either formally or informally, is a good thing. I mean, that doesn't take away my responsibility to make sure that what they're hearing is true and to, to guide that process. But it doesn't put me as the sole arbiter of that process. Yeah. Right? You know? I'll just say a real good practical example, too. Like, let's use Vicky. Say Vicky was on our worship team. If you haven't heard Vicky sing, she's got a beautiful voice. By the way, she's not here today. She's not feeling well. Oh, yeah. So this is a lot. Say that she was up. We, we have, we, Shanda did a wonderful job of leading in worship today. We have women on our team that will get on microphones. Some churches won't allow that because women aren't allowed to speak in church according to their misunderstanding of the scripture. Now, if, if we have a typical worship set and Dan was to say something and Vicky was leading and she came up and corrected him, yeah. if I was in a church that had a rule book that was set out to where we didn't let her talk, I don't have to think about that. But I do have to think, I don't have to because I have wonderful women on our worship team. But we might have to deal with that and we would. Then you might go, well, that's a little wild, wild west. You know what? I don't have a rule I can come from scripture that says don't do that. We would deal with it. So if that, something like that happened in the middle of a service, it'd be uncomfortable. But we have an obligation to produce orderly worship that reflects God's word. And we believe that would be true, that we shouldn't be questioning the authority of the church in the middle of a worship service. But that doesn't mean we're going to make sure that you never well, get a microphone. I think we do have a guideline on that. I think what we just read is the guideline that's on right. that, and that's you would right. say that's not appropriate. That's right. Yeah, and somebody <laughs> asked, actually, we had a conference here, and uh, somebody came up to me afterwards because somebody was getting close to a, an issue that wasn't necessarily a good thing. And they said, what would you do if somebody, let's say you're a conference, you're responsible or the pastor's responsible for the assembly when you come together. Let's say somebody gets up there and says something that's biblically wrong. 
Okay, biblically, what do you do? And I say, it's my responsibility to shut them down. Well, what does that mean? I go up on the stage and I remove him from the stage. I say, you're done. And people would go, well, that's, that's the role of the authority of the pastor. When something is done in the assembly that is in a contradictory stance to the truth that the people need to hear, it's the responsibility of the pastors to make sure to do that's something about shut it down. Right then, yeah. It's not the individual guy. Let's, again, this goes back to elders. An individual pastor can't just say anything he wants. That's right. If he violates scripture, it's the responsibility of the other pastors to confront that person. Even I would say if there's a difference, they need to have the discussion. But certainly if there's a contradiction, and that's where a plurality of elders is incredibly important. And the pastors have a great responsibility. I will be judged, these guys will be judged on the basis of what did the church hear? Did it represent what the biblical pattern and truth is and who Christ is? If it doesn't, we'll be held accountable to that. I got a brother I love who's Presbyterian, and he'll say all the time, you Baptists are dangerous. <laughs> well, the way it is, man. <laughs> so, well, you. I, well, yeah, that's right. Maybe uh, he's filtering his view yeah. of Baptists through you. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's the problem. I, I think he's talking more general. <laughs> is that that one friend you were talking no, no, about? No, 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 all right, no, no, I think no, no, we've no, gone no, far enough on that Chuck. one. <laughs> Just one thing I do want to make sure Dan said it, but I want to make sure we hear it explicitly. If you're a young lady out here and you're hearing like one future path cut off from your potential roles in life when you hear this discussion around pastors and ministry, it's good to hear that this pastoral role is not one that's for you as a young lady. What is not good for you to hear that you can't do amazing things for the kingdom of God as a young woman. God has uniquely created you as a young woman to do amazing things that men can't do. And you can fully invest your life in the pursuit of Jesus Christ and be confident that he will use you for his glory throughout your life. So please hear that from us. Yes, absolutely hear that. And then here, less than 1% of men in the church will ever be elders. More than half of you are just, not half of you, but half of men in the church are disqualified from being elders. There's roles you cannot do. It's not just a women-men thing. There's a certain set thing. So it's not cutting people out. It's doing what we can to honor the Lord the best ways possible. Amen. All right, one more for Zach. What are the regulative principles of worship? Does Grace Fellowship adhere to these principles? How does Grace Talk fit into the means by which we are called to worship God? Thank you. So since it's capitalized, I'm going to assume here that this is talking about the regulative principles. So this is a thing. So it's not principles. It's, it's one thing that comes from um, our brothers from quite some time ago that wrote the Westminster Confession. So I'm going to actually read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 21, where it defines it. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed, important word, in the Holy Scripture. So in other words, God has determined how he is to be worshipped. He has revealed these methods in Scripture, and he is not to be worshipped in any way that has not been prescribed in Scripture. In, in large part, this principle was developed in response to Roman Catholicism that had come up with this really, a lot of unbiblical ways of worshiping. So the Westminster, what they called the Westminster Divines, they had written this in to basically refute those concepts. Um, it is a well-intended effort to purify corporate worship in such a way that every aspect of it would be born from Scripture and overtly directed towards the magnification of God's glory alone. We say yes. The, it, was, it was and is a good motive. It was and is a good aim. It is, however, flawed 
both practically and hermeneutically. The logic of the perspective is sound. If God has indeed given clear and direct instruction as to how he is to be worshipped in our corporate gatherings, then we should absolutely and wholeheartedly follow that clear and direct command. In Torah, he did indeed give such direction. Much of Israel's worship was clearly prescribed, and it is crystal clear that God expected his people to carry out certain rituals in very certain ways. You can think of examples where that was not done and uh, responded to. However, that form of worship revolved around first the tabernacle and then the temple, which of course are no longer relevant in new covenant worship. This shouldn't cause a problem, right? If God has given instruction for worship under the old covenant, then surely he gives instruction for worship under the new covenant, right? Herein lies the rub. The Westminster divines were committed to maintaining such a strong sense of continuity between the old and new testament, new, old and new covenant that they allowed the predetermined bias to color how they interpreted and applied some scripture. While they claimed to draw conclusions based off things either overtly expressed in the text, things that they said would be deduced by good and necessary consequence, extra-biblical conclusions, such as covenant baptism, prove that their predetermined commitment to continuity between the Old and New Covenant, it impaired their ability to rightly handle the word. Please do not hear me saying that I think you should never listen to anything a Presbyterian says but they have a different hermeneutic when it comes to these things. And there are times when they have looked at the word with presuppositions and it's had impact. This shows itself to be the case with the regulative principle. The fact of the matter is that there is not a section of the New Testament where the author is writing with the intention of prescribing a guidebook for corporate worship. Yes, there are principles that can be derived from some passages, but there is never an instance where the author is writing for the explicit purpose of delivering God's instruction for new covenant corporate worship. However, if you have predetermined that there are rules there for new covenant worship, you will go to the text and you will find them. Because whenever you go to scripture to find something, there's a problem. You will always be successful. Let the scripture tell you what it says. Don't go looking for it to confirm what you've already decided. So do we adhere to the, uh, uh, so on the face of it, the, the regulative principle seems right, right? If there are instructions, we should absolutely follow them. The problem is they're not there, therefore we don't. So we do not adhere to the regulative principle, not because we disagree with it, but because the New Testament authors did not provide a prescription for how corporate worship must take place. So I hope the follow-up here is then what do we do? The irony is we could probably be accused of functionally adhering to the regulative principle. Not because I think the New Testament authors have prescribed how corporate worship must happen, but because the forms of worship we see used in scripture are most effective and profitable. Corporate worship is a group of people gathered for the common purpose of ascribing worth to God. We join together as one body, focusing our attention and efforts on proclaiming God's greatness, that he may be exalted, revered, and embraced rightly for the magnification of his glory, which is always the result and joy for his people. The best way to do this always have been and presumably always will be the ways we see in scripture. God's greatness is magnified when his people sing out about him. So we sing. God's preeminent worth is displayed when we bow before him in prayer. So we pray. The immeasurable beauty of God's character and nature radiate when proclaimed rightly in the preaching of God's word. So we preach. God's people make much of his great and continuing work when we take the cup and eat the bread. So we eat the supper. 
The value of his lordship is seen when his redeemed people declare their allegiance in baptism. So we dunk. I could pull a scripture verse out and I could tell you a way to support all these things. And I could present that scripture verse in such a way that could make you feel like it was a rule. But I'm not gonna rob the scripture of the intent the authors had for it in doing so. That might be harsh language to some of you. And I don't mean for it to be, but we're not gonna add to the text. So the follow-up question would be, how, how, do we, how do we pick things here? How do we go about figuring out how to do things? We are guided by scripture and we will do what we see in scripture because we believe the best means for honoring our Lord are seen there. But we're not gonna come up with a superstructure to give you rules for what must and must not be done uh, in corporate worship. The, the sort of the juxtaposition of, of the regulative principle is the normative principle, That's right. which you see in Lutheran churches and Anglican churches, I believe. Um, and that says that it's okay as long as it's not specifically prohibited. Yeah. So we would not go there either, right? That's because exactly that's right. Because that's sort of so pretty that, wide open. And that's the, the problem there is that you really have gotten into what the divines talked about. It's up mm-hmm. to man's imagination. So we, we do have two functional things that we do, uh, Kevin and I and the rest of the worship team, when we're trying to think through things. So you, this is an interesting response here. Some of you are on the corporate worship ministry team. So you're hearing this answer a little bit different. Because you have, you might think to yourself, if you're not, well, maybe I can suggest something and Zach will do it. Most of them have suggested something and I've said, no, we're not. So (laughs) they're receiving it a different way, which doesn't mean that anybody's done anything bad, but we run it through these two filters. Our first filter, and I hope you hear us talk about it all the time, is we are gathered in this room to exalt our Lord. I use that term. I know it's not a term we use frequently, but it's simply this, it's from a Latin term that means to lift him up. We are here to put him up and ascribe worth to him for all to see and proclaim his greatness. That's what we do when we are gathered in this room. That is first and foremost. The second question we ask is, will this congregation use whatever we're going to do to do the first thing, right? So I was having a conversation with somebody. This happens often. If you come to my house and there's praise music on, it's not the praise music that we sing in this church. It'll be a different feel. And people will say, why don't we do those songs at church? And I will say, because you wouldn't exalt the Lord with it. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if it's the music that I enjoy. It would be fine. The regulative principle, I think, even would be fine with it. But if we're not going to use it as a corporate body to make much of Jesus Christ when we're in this room, we have failed. And you say, well, that means it opens it up to everything. I don't think it does. So, I think it opens it up to prayer, singing, uh, preaching. So if somebody came to your house and heard the music, the worship music, why wouldn't it work well? It, unpack that a little bit. What would be some ways in which it wouldn't work here? Uh, it comes from a different, different cultural premise that I think people would, and this is good, so people would probably look at it and they would go, oh, that's interesting. Other people might just leave the room. Um, I don't have the musicians to perform it. It's a different, there's some so singability, singability. practical stuff. Yeah, so that's, and those are the questions we get into. We have another hierarchy for how we pick things out. Yeah. Can the congregation sing it? That's usually why I say no to somebody when they present a song in our worship team. I love that song. I'm glad you love it. In a different context, we might. I don't think our congregation can sing it. And I don't want people to be sitting there thinking about that. I want them to be proclaiming and ascribing worth to the yeah. Lord when and they it, do it's it. it's not that he's insulting you and you're singing. It's, there's, <laughs> some yeah, things yeah. don't work in group. Yeah, 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 yeah so that, that, You guys couldn't do that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Churches develop a form, right? There's a, there's a style in what you're used to. And I get people go, well, why don't you step outside of that? And if we were at a concert, that'd be great. But we don't come here on Sunday morning trying to expose you to different things. I'm not trying to broaden your horizons. We're trying to make much of Jesus, right? That's the aim of what we're doing. So um, again, with the guardrails, does it make it a little bit more hard for us 
Yes, it would be easier for me to say we're not going to do interpretive dance because of section 2.3a. <laughs> It'd be easy to do that. But the reason we're not going to do interpretive dance is because this congregation is not going to exalt Christ in it. And it's also not corporate. But Yeah, and so let's say we're in South America and there are different forms that people regularly, it wasn't distracting, but it actually part of their culture that they saw this as valuable. They may do that. So therefore, the regulative principle has the idea of everybody must do the, this way. Yeah. We would say that, that that simply is not borne out by Scripture. Now, the, the, it's great because the tension goes down. Everybody goes, okay, that's what we got to do. But the reality is in avoiding tension, you create a standard that doesn't exist. And I think it's also important to recognize that um, it, it does not open everything up. And, and there's a lot of different forms of the regulative principle. So generally, yeah. what you're going to, the people you're going to, I want you, you go Google it. And the people that are going to come up are people you've probably listened to their podcast. You've maybe gone to a conference and heard them speak. And you're going to go, I agree with this guy. Why isn't he right? He's also going to be Presbyterian, right? I'm just going to tell you that, right? So please come talk to me about it. I would love to get more into why I think they're seeing the scripture wrong there, okay? And it's bigger. It's much bigger than the regular principle, right? But what I want you to see, there's also people that will get very in the weeds about it and even take the scripture to say more things it doesn't and will be very... uh, very particular. So it's a broad family that works under the regular principle. Yeah, and principle. when you say they're wrong, you're not saying they're not Christian. No, you're no, no, no. You're saying the no. way they see this, yes. like anybody else, we can have differences inside, yeah. inside Christianity. Exactly People right. emphasize or different maturity, different lens. Like you mentioned, the hermeneutic. Yeah. It's just a, uh, a way you read scripture, principles that help you interpret scripture. Yeah. They have a unique uh, in hermeneutic. The same Presbyterian brother, actually, on this principle I didn't think about, would say, on this topic, we're just on, just immediately on opposite sides of the same line, which yeah. means we could actually go to each other's church, but we probably wouldn't be in fellowship long-term with one another. Yeah, quick example. I had a, a guy who one time told me he was downtown and a guy was preaching on the street corner and he was like, ah, oh, I, I just couldn't believe he was doing it. I was like, hold on a second. Was it wrong? And he stopped and he was like, uh... Because I was asking the question, so he stopped. Uh, but he thought it was wrong. But it's, it wasn't it was wrong, he figured out. It's because he would never do that. And so because he would never do it, he started thinking and treating it like it was wrong. And that's one thing. We, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. And be very careful. Because again, comes back yeah. to we want to remove the tension from our life. So we want everybody to do what we would do. That's right. Uh, but be careful because you'll create an edifice of the church that was never meant to be. It's meant to be very pluralistic in the sense of divergence of maturity and giftings. And, and that's not a bad thing. When you say somebody's wrong, it better be about the interpretation of scripture. And then you move on from there. Yeah. And then you can have a lot of agreement once you realize what you're disagreeing about. We've only got a couple minutes left, but there was a final part of that question I want to make sure we hit. And that was, how do we see grace talk fitting into our Yeah. Worship? Oh yeah, that's right. I actually stopped reading. That was the finishing part. Um, is the, so in the concept, we don't think the construct of teaching is prescribed in scripture. So this, like anything else can be done poorly and it can be done well. So when we do a grace talk panel, there's probably times we've done it before where it wasn't good leading in corporate worship, right? If we get, if we get caught in the weeds and we're trying to do some kind of thing here, when we're gathered together, this is about exaltation. And I hope you've seen that represented in the questions that we've done this morning in the way we responded to them. You might not have got an academic question that, Answer, or an academic answer you would have preferred, but we're up here trying to do this in such a way that we make much of Jesus Christ. Hardest thing to do in this church is probably intro a new book, isn't it? 
because we're trying to look for exaltation when we're trying to intro. I'm going through Luke and I'm giving you history or whatever. But we know on Tuesday morning, if Dan was to intro Luke and he came back here and didn't make much of Jesus in his message, we're going to say, you dropped the ball on that, right? So it's it's not the form as much as it is the focus and the aim of what we're doing. Well, I mean, what have we done today too? We've sung hymns to glorify God. We've prayed, we've taught. I mean, you know, it's... And and Grace Talk, one of the things, there's a few other things. We want to have a culture where people ask questions. So this models that. We also have a culture of plurality of leadership. This models that. So there's a variety of things that are all part of Grace Talk that support the intention of... Being here for our... Just a few things to remember, encourage you in. First of all, is out going to have... um, some tables out there we encourage you to pay attention to, and I'm trying to get my notes up. Here we go. At the table, after our time here, girls' night out is coming up. So ladies, if you want to be a part of that, it's a great way to connect with other ladies, get to know other people, to build really more than friendships, but build allies in your life. So make sure you're at events like this because knowing somebody else when you come here is huge in making you feel comfortable, accepted, and welcome. So that's going to be in the lobby afterwards, Girls' Night Out. Also, Essentials and its fellowship. If you have been coming here and are interested in becoming a member, uh, that Essentials class is for you to answer your questions. We'll walk through why we exist, why we do what we do. And so if you're thinking about that, please go and uh, talk to the rep at the table this morning. Also, Taste of Grace, we're entering into summer. We're still going to have that. It's going to be a little shortened. But if you're brand new, want to ask some questions this morning, room number one's for you. We're going to have some coffee and some munchies. We'll go in there. We'll talk about why we exist. And so you can consider whether this might be a place for you or if you come there and hear something, you go, that's not really I'm looking for in a church, then we've saved you time and you can move on to another assembly. Uh, so Taste of Grace, room number one. Also remember to use a calendar feature in Church Center because we have a tons of stuff going on. Matter of fact, next week we're going to be having a uh, picnic after church, whole church thing. Bunch of information on there about that. We ask you to come out, have a fun time. We're going to have slides and a bunch of stuff in the yard, in the back after the service. So kids will have a blast. You'll have a blast getting to know one another as we kick off this upcoming summer. And it's our hope that as we come together as a group, we just don't come together for us. Our desire is to make disciples. Why? Because that spreads the fame of God. Our desire is to spread his fame. That's what Jesus Christ did when he came to this earth. And that's what we enter into as a church. We want to spread the fame of God. So to that end, we ask that God would bless you and that he would drive your heart and mind to that reality. And you might share with somebody, maybe even today who's far away from Christ, and encourage somebody who is in Christ so that you'd introduce somebody so they become a disciple and encourage people who are disciples to be about the good work of making disciples. You are dismissed.